Hi, I'm Samantha, a past guest on CJAM's HandyLink. You're listening to HandyLink on CJAM 99.1 FM, reaching high ground in Windsor, Detroit. HandyLink, sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities to individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. In this segment of our show, I'll be chatting with Amy Amentea from Vocal Eye. So, tell me a little bit about Vocal Eye. Yeah, Vocal Eye, uh, near and dear to my particular heart because I'm a person who lives with um, a profound sight loss. Um, and Vocal Eye was started in uh, 2010, um, around the time of the Olympics, and was uh, kind of a, a pilot project by Kickstart Disability Arts and Culture, and then sort of grew into its own not for profit society when Steph Kirkland, our executive director, um, you know, took it from its original pilot and grew it into the full-fledged not-for-profit society it is today. And, and Gli, before the pandemic, was focused heavily on uh, live description for live arts and cultural events for folks who are blind and partially sighted. Um, so that, for example, might look like um, a theater production, and we're all sitting in a theater together, and, um, you know, there's a a show about to happen and as a blind person I don't necessarily have access to what the costumes look like, who the characters are, what the character relationships are, what the set looks like, um, and certainly what the action is between the lines of dialogue. So I would get a, a sort of a little FM receiver and a, a single earpiece and in my ear the describer would uh, tell me those details while I'm sitting live in the theater. So that, um, that, that is sort of the, the foundations of Vocalize. But of course, you know, over the years I've expanded to do uh, fireworks and pride parades and uh, art tours and all of those different things. So our, our participation in creating accessible arts for the blind community has, has grown exp- exponentially. So in terms of uh, arts themselves, things like uh, visual art, do you find there are any myths out there concerning whether a person with a vision loss would be able to fully appreciate? I think that there is not a 100% translation between a visual and an audio experience. Um, so, you know, if, if, if I'm going to be in a gallery and I'm looking at a painting um, as a blind person or a partially sighted person, but if I'm in front of a painting with a, with a sight person, um, they can't possibly explain to me everything that's in that painting. It's just, it's an impossibility. But what I look for is, um, is uh, kind of an idea of 
the big picture. So yes, it's a painting. Yes, it's about this size. Yes, we start with this big world uh, as as the overarching theme painting, and then we, you know, start to as we describe talk about the specifics. So it's it's really a starting from the wide angle and going to the specifics. And then what I really want in terms of visual art, not necessarily theater. But in, in visual art, what I really want is that person's lens. So how does that piece make that, you know, that that person feel? What is it about that piece that you like or you don't like? Because a part of what I'm looking for as a listener is um, that connect to the other person, right? Um, because again, you know, I could, I could form my own opinions about it, but um, some of the gaps that I'm missing, and I think sometimes folks who want to describe stuff that aren't necessarily trained describers think that they need to tell you everything that's happening in the picture all the time. And uh, the truth is, is that even sighted folks, there are things that they don't see and they're right in front of their faces. So uh, maybe that's kind of the myth is that, you know, everything in very much particular detail needs to be described. But aren't there things like uh, tactile pieces of visual art as well? Uh, yeah, there certainly are. I mean, I've, I've actually traveled to the world and seen some... Uh, places, the, the Louvre in Paris, for example, um, has some replicas of, uh, you know, famous statues and that that you can explore with your hands. Um, you know, the Van Gogh Museum has the famous sunflower painting uh, available in a couple of tactile options, so raised paint and um, sort of a 3D type tactile uh, printing of it. Very rudimentary, but you can sort of trace it with your fingers. It looks actually like Visually, it would look like a child's coloring book. It's a white page with raised, heavy black lines, and you follow them with your fingers, and it looks like you're supposed to color it in, right? Um, uh, and so, yes, there are tactiles. Even when we go to the theater, we can do uh, a touch tour, so I can touch some objects that are a part of the sets or the costumes, things that I wouldn't uh, normally experience. So, you know, what does damask fabric feel like? Or a certain weapon, for example, when do you get a chance to hold that or experience that in sort of everyday life um that are hard to sort of explain visually because maybe they're created out of a couple of objects put together you know maybe it's a macgyvered prop kind of thing um so yeah there are our touch tours and ways of experiencing through tactiles which are super interesting to explore but again for me it's a different experience than description right and it's a different experience than seeing and so you know, while there is a relationship, it's not an exact translation. So, in terms of uh, putting together theater arts for Vocali, what are some of the challenges associated with it? A describer would have to, to go in and see the show maybe two, three times uh, while they create their notes um, and write their, uh, their description. And, of course, they have to have a, a full script of the the show and, and write in, you know, they, they have to, they have to use their, their script like a map. So they have to add their description in, in these moments where, up, where, where the actors aren't talking. Um, and that's a, a whole art and it's on its own. Um, so there are many, many, many hours of prep before somebody is behind a microphone and is live during the production. Um, you know, in terms of, of somebody like myself with sight loss, just getting to the theater, um, there's, barriers to ticket price, which Vocalize also has a program to help mitigate that barrier. There's barriers to transportation. Uh, Vocalize also has a program to, to help provide sighted guides uh, so that uh, folks can navigate and find the theater. 
Um, you know, finding your seats is a challenge. Um, gosh. So at the end of the day, sometimes when we say, oh, yes, it's accessible because it's described, you know, accessible for folks who are blind, there are other barriers to just participating uh, that also most folks aren't considering. Um, the things I do in some of my, my work in accessibility is just to remind folks that accessibility is not an if you build it, they will come scenario. Accessibility is about doing the right thing so that people can participate and be inclusive. Um, and so it takes, you know, just because you've made something available with ASL or description or any of the other uh, accessibility features, you still may not get those patrons coming because there are so many other barriers to just showing up at the theater, for example. So Vocalite really takes uh, as much of a holistic approach as they can to trying to bring folks out to the theater. And, and one of the other things that they do, again, before we were all isolated because we're doing different things now that we're during the pandemic, virtual things, um, you know, we would uh, build social connection. And some folks in the blind community are, are, you know, they don't want to come to a show by themselves and they don't have anybody else to go to, but they would really like to see the show. And so, you know, part of my role with Vocalize uh, before the pandemic would have been to, to gather a bunch of folks to invite them out and, you know, let's go see a show and then let's go to a restaurant and I'll treat you to some appetizers and we'll just do some community building. We'll talk about the show, we'll have a little social. Uh, and those things seem to be a really nice uh, tie-in to our, our live, um, live arts experiences. So, in your time with Vocali, is there any success moment in particular that stands out for you? Oh, gosh. Um, I think there's a lot of success moments. I think um, Vocali is very proud of what we've done. We're the first company and uh, first not-for-profit, I suppose, in, in Canada to be doing this work. Um, so, we're, we're ahead of the curve, and there are certainly lots of who are freelance describers, Um but I think one of the things that I'm most proud of in particular is the work that we've done during the pandemic. So, you know, in BC, in Vancouver, where we're based, the theaters have worked since March of 2020. And um, it has been very challenging with no live arts. So without live arts, you don't have live option. And uh, Vocali took a, a very quick pivot to putting things online. Uh, and that was really exciting because we were able to, it was also a learning curve, but we were able to sort of become a bit of our own character of content, which we have not ever done necessarily before in a, in a large capacity like we are now. Um, but the value of, of being able to connect with our, our community over Zoom, we now have blind folks that join us from New York and from Saskatchewan and from Minnesota and from Colorado and from Ontario and so all, all sort of over North America, sometimes we have folks that have joined us from other parts of, of the world outside of North America. So we can really build community. And, and the kinds of things we share on our platform are things like we might create a virtual tour out of a list of images. Um, we, we might uh, have an archival video in which our describers have now been trained to do audio description embedded in video so that it can be shared on the platform. So we do all sorts of things, and I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of and will likely stick around in some capacity once um, once, once we're in the post-COVID world. I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Yeah. In this segment of our show, Chelsea Elder will be telling us a little bit about Adaptive Adventures.
So what can you tell me about Adaptive Adventures? Um, Adaptive Adventures was founded in 1999 by two individuals who had physical disabilities. And their goal at that time was to really start a program that helps people to have like those great adventures without having to go the Paralympic route. And uh, it started out with an, uh, them purchasing a houseboat, an accessible houseboat on Lake Powell, and then gradually became a bunch of adventure ski camps like in Bay of Canada and Jackson Hole. And then um, over the years has really transformed into an organization that provides a unique mobile program where we actually travel around to provide our services in different locations of, of the United States and of the world. So. What types of adventures are most commonly sought after these days? Yeah, um, most of the, uh, the programming that we do is uh, cycling, rock climbing, kayaking, paddle boarding, dragon boat racing, skiing, water skiing, and several others. So for things like uh, rock climbing or paddle boarding, do you ever see anyone with, say, a vision impairment? Absolutely, yes. So, um, we see people with uh, spinal cord injuries, uh, limb loss, uh, visual impairments, um, PTSD, traumatic brain injury, multiple sclerosis, muscular dystrophy, cerebral palsy, uh, Parkinson's disease, and really any other mobility-related uh, disability you can think of. So do you have modified equipment on hand for anyone who may need it? Absolutely, yeah. So any... Uh, type of modification that could possibly be made. Um, we either have uh, something that already exists or if someone has a unique uh, situation, we usually either garage innovation, uh, something for them there on the spot, or we work with a lot of universities with their human engineering and design programs to come up with true like 3D printed adaptations that they can use from then on out. So in terms of... Uh People like veterans who might be dealing with PTSD, what's the mental health impact of being physically active and being out there? Well, we truly believe it's a transformative experience for people to participate in the programs, not just because they're getting outdoors, but also they're socializing with individuals who have may have similar life circumstances they may be able to get out and be active for the first time post-injury, um, maybe for the first time with their family, um, and then really just the camaraderie that's experienced within the community because it's such an inclusive community. And of course, the, there's so many health benefits to being in the beauty and awe of nature. So how do you go about reaching out to the disability community? So, uh, first and foremost, we work a lot with rehab hospitals, uh, VA medical centers, children's hospitals, um, to really try to impact people, you know, right away um, after diagnosis or injury. Um, but uh, furthermore, we partner with a lot of different organizations, whether that's park and rec districts or other adaptive sport agencies, disability uh, meetup groups. Uh, just a wide variety of ways to connect. And then, of course, we have our internal ways of our website, uh, social media, and then a lot of outreach events to try to reach people and let them know that these opportunities exist. 
Are there any challenges in tailoring a program to someone with a disability? Um, I would say the the biggest challenge is usually if somebody doesn't pre-register and then they show up and they have a unique situation. Um, it just takes us a little bit more time to uh, outfit that person. But I think um, one of the challenges we experienced in this last year with the pandemic was that uh, we, we transitioned to providing virtual programs, which was extremely popular to keep people engaged during the pandemic. And uh, it was really interesting for our team to figure out how do we teach to all of these different disabilities uh, when we're not in person and still have everybody have a great experience in their home. And so uh, what we did is we actually did like a baseline of we taught everything in a seated and standing position, but then also if someone needed more uh, complex modifications or uh, guided directions, then we had moderators on our, our sessions so that they could uh, help them through the extra adaptations. So in your time with Adaptive Adventures, is there any success moment that stands out for you? Oh, man, there are so many, but I think the one that most comes to mind is we had a woman reach out to us that um, she was born with a limb difference on her right arm and her right leg, and she had never participated in sports before in her life, and she wanted to know if she could try our Dragon Boat Racing program. And I remember she came out to the program, and she was so worried about how she was going to get in the boat, how she was going to get out of the boat, how she was going to paddle with her hook-like prosthetic. And, um, of course, we were able to modify a paddle easily for her to be able to paddle. But when we got back to the shore, she just broke down in tears after our session. And she said this was the first time in her 47 years of life that she has ever been a part of a team and done anything physically active. And uh, later on that year, she participated in, a, in some races with us. And we were having our team dinner and we talked about how, you know, everybody on the team are true athletes. And uh, she started crying again. And she said, this is the first time in her life that she ever identified herself as an athlete. And so it was extremely impactful for her. She uh, started training on a regular basis and, you know, just found a huge group of friends and support that had similar ability and, and like-mindedness to her. So we are slowly returning to in-person program delivery. Um, we also are doing some hybrid models of programming where we're live streaming some of our events, but also at the same time, um, it, providing the event in person so we can serve more people. And then uh, really one of the silver linings out of this whole experience is that we realize that we can actually serve a lot more people and make our programs a lot more accessible by providing virtual programs. So we are going to continually provide virtual programs from here on out uh, in addition to our in-person programs. So we're slowly getting back into it um, just kind of based upon, uh, you know, venue access and um, different public county health um, department uh, guidelines, but um, but uh, in general, if somebody wants to get involved with us at this point, um, you know, they can go to our website and look at our offerings, and they're constantly changing as we update with the ongoing situation. I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
worse. Handy Link will be right back after these commercial messages, so stay tuned. So you're hanging with your inner circle. Maybe you're making cocktails. Maybe you're packing bowls. Even while we're distancing, it's important to remember, alcohol and cannabis each mess with your driving skills. Be cool. Make sure you and your friends get home safe. Take a cab if you need to. A few bucks could save a life. And we can do it again next weekend. A message from Arrive Alive, Drive Sober. Welcome back to HandyLink, sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. Earlier in our show, we heard from Amy Amantea from Vocal Eye, and Chelsea Elder told us a little bit about Adaptive Adventures. In this segment of our show, we'll hear from Bonnie Lukowicz, B-O-R-P. So, can you tell me a little bit about BORP? Sure. Um, so, BORP is Bay Area Outreach Recreation Program. Uh, I got started in, well, I don't know the year, but 45 years ago we'll be celebrating uh, anniversary this summer and was started by a UC Berkeley, University of California Berkeley student uh, that was uh, frustrated with not having access to any athletic programs. And so she started a wheelchair basketball program and it became much bigger than that and uh, eventually was became a nonprofit and is a community group. So it's not associated with the university, although we have a good connection with them. And we provide a variety of sports and adapted sports and recreation programs for people primarily with physical disabilities and uh, vision disabilities. And the scope of our programs include one of the first youth wheelchair programs in the country. So we have wheelchair basketball and sled hockey. And then we have adult sports, wheelchair basketball, power soccer, uh, goal ball, and we have a fitness program, uh, now both virtual and in-person, and a variety of classes offered on that. And we have uh, one of our biggest programs probably is our adapted cycling. So we have an adapted cycling center down at a park and it's a drop-in program the first again in the country and people can come check out a bike and ride right from our bike house we have 17 miles of bay trail and so people um, get fitted for a bike that might work for them and then they get to take off and ride Um, we also will be starting a kayaking program shortly, like within the next few weeks. And we have an Adventures and Outings program. We have two adapted vehicles, so we're able to provide transportation. And 
the the programs you know run everything from indoor activities, rock climbing, um, you know, visits to wineries, theater, and then outdoor adventures such as whitewater rafting and hiking and pretty much anything you can think of. And then the last thing, which is the program that I run, is uh, working with parks, um, <clears throat> doing consulting around accessibility, uh, maintaining a website of wheelchair accessible trails throughout Northern California, and uh, alternative types of lodging, such as yurts and cabins. Um, so that's a website. Are there any challenges in making these accommodations so a person with a disability can actually get out and enjoy the parks? Well, I think the biggest challenge is still that it's it's fallen on the shoulders of those of us that need accessibility to make sure that it's happening. Um, so... I'd say that is the biggest challenge, and then also another challenge here, anyway, is in finding equitable ways to ensure that people with disabilities are actually getting to reserve those cabins and, and places of lodging that are accessible. Um, so ideally, when these become available, that... Um, the accessible cabins are the last cabins to be sold, um, so not any, not just anyone can, uh, you know, <laughs> make a reservation. So that part's really challenging. How do you determine who's eligible to, to stay in those cabins? I'd say that's probably one of the biggest challenges. So, in your time with Borb, has there been any success moment that stands out? Um, well, there's been lots of them. Um, most recently. I would say it is, um, for me personally, getting um, someone that I know that's just turned 70 on a bike for the first time, um, thinking he'd never be able to ride one, and was able to do it, and now becomes a regular part of uh, his routine. So, did you use any modified equipment for this individual? Yes. Um, our cycling center, we have a wide variety of different types of bikes. Um, they used a side-by-side uh, -side bike, so you're sitting side-by-side, -side and it's not a you know regular bicycle seat. Um, it basically looks like, um, well, it's hard to describe, but then it's also got a uh, power assist with it. So... What was this person's uh, disability? If you don't mind my asking. Cerebral palsy. Um, so, if you could send any message to the community about the fact that people with disabilities can and should get out and enjoy just exercise and being a part of nature and recreation, what would you say? Uh, just do it. <laughs> um, it may be challenging, and you may have to work at it, but it's worth the effort, and then it will become a big part of your life that you'll think, how did I ever live without it? Right. 
thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. My friends, it all comes down to design. The fact is, being out in nature, appreciating all this world has to offer, something we should all experience and be entitled to. However, there's only a limited number of accessible spaces available, kind of short changes the opportunities a person with a disability might have to get out there. Inclusion not being an afterthought necessitates we as a society take the time to factor in the knowledge that one day a person with a disability is going to come along, they're going to want to appreciate nature, to be out there. Who are we to say, just because we didn't plan to make this space accessible, you therefore should not be allowed to be out there? Just make everything as accessible as possible. You're only doing yourselves a disservice when that doesn't happen. The fact is, we're all but one moment away from having our lives changed and finding ourselves in an adapting situation. Planning for persons with disabilities is planning for our future and showing a genuine respect and appreciation for the diversity of the world. This has been HandyLink. I'm your host, Cam Wells, reminding you we're all equal. So get on out there and have yourselves a good one. Something tells me you've earned it, folks. We'll see you next week.